I think the person with the advantage today intellectually isn't the person with the answers, but is the person who's been formed to go and understand how we got the answers. And education forms us in, in a way that going on Wikipedia does not form us. Welcome to Framework Leadership, a podcast about principles and ideas you can use today to take your leadership to the next level. I'm your host, Ken Engel, president of Southeastern University. And I'm your co-host, Michael Steiner, vice president for innovation. And we're excited today to uh, welcome our guest, Chris Palmer. Chris is the founder uh, and pastor of Light of Today Church in Nova, Michigan. He's also the dean of Theos and, and Theos Universe, or seminar, Seminary. He's an international teacher, Greek scholar, professor of theology, and author of seven books, including Letters from Jesus, Greek Word Study. And his latest book, I love this, Winks from Scripture. This is That's great. It's so great to have you with us today. Good to be here. Thank you guys for having me. And uh, yeah, good to be in Florida. Yeah, look forward to our conversation. I want to start our conversation off by discussing your passion for missions. You have a, a powerful passion. You've ministered in over 40 nations from Europe to Africa, South America, Asia, the Caribbean, working with both traditional churches and what you would call underground churches, and tell us about these experiences and how they've impacted your life. Yeah, so I started traveling internationally in 2011, and then one thing led to the next and found myself doing a lot of my travel being international. Maybe one of the biggest um, instances in my life is when I had my first time to travel in Italy mm. uh, and started doing a lot of work from that point forward. I just really connected with the Italian culture, started learning the language, became conversational, and so one trip to Italy became... 20, I think, today. today. Mm. So it's a, it's a cool place to do ministry. And then in 2018, I did my first uh, teaching trip to Vietnam where the church was, you could call it underground. And so it was interesting because when we got to the hotel with the pastor, he says, now go up, pretend like you checked in, go, go there, check in, go up to the room, run the shower, undo the soap, pretend like you've used the room, undo the bed, and then leave out the back door. So I left out the back door, got in the car, and then we went to where we had our meetings for the week. Wow. So they didn't want to get tracked. It was interesting. Sure. Wow. Yeah. So I yeah. thought, like, this is cool. I get to be kind of like a kind James of, yeah. Bond. Yeah. 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 Spy. yeah. <laughs> so that's it in a nutshell. Love it. Love it. So tell us a little bit about your vision. You know, you obviously have a support for missions, and you it's part of what you do. Tell us about how you see missions work today in, in the mm-hmm. 21st century. Yeah, how so, do students need to think about it? Yeah. That? So at Theos University, we look at ourselves as missionaries to the West, because we felt that now it's the Northern Hemisphere that has become the great mission field, particularly the right. West, because I think we could all agree that it's not too far of a stretch to say that we're living in a post-Christian mm-hmm, yes. West. Mm-hmm. And the idea, we, we found the way that we have talked about Theos University is that we're missionaries to the West. Now, we found that traditional individuals, they can't wrap their minds around a missionary to the West because their modules for thinking about missions has been Africa or Asia or Southeast Asia or mm-hmm. Brazil or one of these places. But it's like, wait, we've moved away from Christianity in the West. And because of that, it's almost like we're re-evangelizing mm-hmm. our culture mm-hmm. And so that's coming in different ways. I mean, where it used to be the crusade and power evangelism, now it's like, hey, give us something intellectual, make an intellectual case for Christianity. And so that's what we're trying to do, and that's how we see missions right now, what we're doing. Yeah. Uh, Talk to us a little bit about your personal approach to educating pastors Mm -hmm. and and congregations, and why do you think it's so important for 
uh, Christ followers to be biblically and theologically educated. Yeah, so we found that a lot of pastors that we we worked to our demographic found themselves pastoring, didn't know how they got themselves into this. They a lot of them have business backgrounds. Right. They were good in sales, they were good in leadership, and then one thing led to the next and they found themselves pastoring a church and they never had that time in their life where they had theological education. And so it works for a while where you can kind of preach your top 10 or your right. best 5 right. and then and then iterations of your top 10 and top 5. But then bigger questions come along and you realize you have to think through things more. And if you don't turn to theology, then your message be can, can become completely political really quick, right, right. where you're standing on a soapbox and, and you've become a news outlet rather than mm -hmm. dividing the text and dividing the scripture. Or, you, you know, their version of preaching was evangelism. They knew how to get people saved. They knew the Romans road. And then, you know, they realized pastoring can't be a call to salvation every right. single Sunday right. morning, right. telling people to repent. And, and so they realized I have to divide the text. And then you get to the text and you realize there's a lot in here that's not as clear as I may have hoped it to be. Yeah. And then you may start to try and preach things. And then they realize my theology is a patchwork of cherry picking. Sure. So yeah. how do you work through this systematically and methodologically? And we've been trying to help that pastor, and that kind of came to the forefront during COVID, mm. when there was a lot of uh, theological demand for things that uh, COVID brought up, different issues of various kinds, so we found that we can step in the space and help people. Yeah, and this is a particularly big deal in Pentecostalism, right, in the movement, mm -hmm. which we all share, which we're yep. all part of it. That, that branch has historically, right, mm -hmm. not been a highly educated mm -hmm. educated branch. But, you know, you guys talk a lot about this new wave of Pentecostalism, yep. what it means. Tell us a little bit about this new wave. Where, where, what's happening in yeah, this so, movement? Yeah, so Pentecostals, they I, I would argue that they were very intellectual and they liked ideas and they liked innovation, but they were anti-academy, mm -hmm. meaning that because the academy was based around the higher critics, the German higher criticism, it wasn't helpful to the crisis of the day, which eventually, after 1906, led to... Spanish flu, World yep. War One, you know, the inventions of the modern world, and they, there was a crisis going on, and they felt like, well, these individuals in the ivory towers, they, they can't help because they're, they're doing reaction criticism mm -hmm. and source criticism, things like this. So they got back to the Bible. Mm -hmm. yeah, they became yeah. very simplistic, and their schools were just, the Bible was the textbook, and we're going to do our best, and they didn't get everything right. And so compared to the Reformed tradition and other traditions, it looks anti-intellectual, but in their defense, it was, we can't go along with this. But if you compare, they were the missionaries of the time. Yep. They were the ones that got on steamships and went to Liberia and preached the gospel and, and evangelized South America and evangelized South Africa. And and so maybe you see in the Pentecostal mission field, Christianity, and it's two million miles long and maybe perhaps two feet deep, mm. but they did a lot of great things. And so as Pentecostalism has kind of gone through different waves... It's been simplistic, and it has lacked in theology, I think, but in this fourth wave, some scholars would argue that it's becoming very thoughtful, very given to intellectual um, thinking, and it's made its way into the academies. And so now there's whole schools like Bangor University, right. uh, Birmingham, even Harvard under Harvey, Harvey Cox has its own department of Pentecostal studies because it's touched 700 million people. Right. You can't ignore it as a social movement, if anything. Yeah, that's good. You earned a Bachelor's of Arts in Pastoral Studies from North Central, Master's in Exegetical Theology from Moody. Uh, you're currently working on your PhD and your dissertation at Bangor University, focusing on the topic of suffering and, 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 
And, and, and what else are you studying in that? Is, yeah, is, suffering, theodicy, and so I'm, I'm working towards, I'm at the very end of a, a, what I call a pneumatological theodicy, a, a Pentecostal approach to suffering that works in, in a way that is faithful to our tradition. Yeah, unpack that even more so. So typically, um, Pentecostalism has been, in, in one sense, triumphalistic in the sense that we felt that everybody should be healed all the time. Mm-hmm. And even in early Pentecostal studies, they realize real quick that's not always all the case. case yeah. It's not always the case. And then, so so what do you do when when you're believing God for healing, but you see so much suffering? And then there comes the philosophical questions about that. And the question I was asking is in, in surveying the early Pentecostal literature and seeing this spirit of faith and hope for healing, but then also seeing this disappointment. How should we we respond to suffering as Pentecostals? And what I learned right off the bat is that a philosophical approach to rationalize the why question is not the Pentecostal response to it, because Mm. you just can't get there, Mm. you know? And then I started to develop that it's not only un-Pentecostal to be philosophical about suffering, but it's not part of the biblical narrative to offer a philosophical explanation for suffering. But it is biblical, and it is Pentecostal, that the way that you respond to suffering is through the move of the Spirit, how the Spirit comes along in your life and moves you to respond to suffering. The way that the Pentecostals respond to it was not rationally. They weren't modernists in the way they approached it, but they were uniquely Pentecostal. That is, they were driven by the Spirit to help the sufferer, to not silence the sufferer, to offer the sufferer um, what they had received by the Spirit. And you see that through Pentecostal literature. So I would argue that as Pentecostals, the way that we respond to suffering is that we offer our response that's by the Spirit, and that could mm-hmm. involve various ways. Sure. I love yeah. it. I love that's it. Great. So what, I mean, you know, if you're talking to pastors, right, these days, and they're, I think suffering is one of the main mm-hmm. questions that you hinted on earlier, where, especially out of COVID, right, yep. this is like, how do we, how do we address this? So how are we, what is the next wave of teaching pastors on how to teach on this subject and how to, how to help their congregation yeah, so from, through So it? my first thing would be that we, we can't offer rational explanations. Mm-hmm. So we have to get it off our mind that that we aren't going to do that, and there's no there's no um, code that we have to break to why we suffer, and so we shouldn't start off on that foot. So anything that we're teaching that tries to simplify or explain suffering, like the Maui fires, mm-hmm. or look for that silver lining, but you know, all these people died, but this good came out of it, like, throw that away, yeah. because what that does is it silences the sufferer, it keeps, it, it reduces the sufferer's suffering. We, mm-hmm. should, we shouldn't go that route. The way that we should go is offering support, helping them out, being boots on the ground, being the first to be there, having that that zealous spirit to be the first person to help that individual, and spend our time focused on that versus suffering. And fortunately, a lot of people are already doing that. Yeah. And I have friends that are in the mission field who are doing that, who are just, just really embracing that spirit. So I tell pastors that don't get up in your pulpit and try to offer reductionist answers to suffering yeah. because you feel you have to. Yeah. It's best you don't. Right. It's best that you you... you Spend time with your congregation in prayer, mm-hmm. seeking God, yeah. and move as the Spirit leads you. But it's probably not going to be, yeah. I'd argue, a, a yeah, rational yeah, yeah. response. My, my parents were were Pentecostal missionaries, and we grew up doing um, medical crusades, and that's mm-hmm. how it always was. It was w- the Spirit of God is going to move as we meet real need in that moment, yep. and, and that's the threat of all Pentecostals. I mean, right. we're mm-hmm. the first in the boots, and so I love, I love that teaching. Um, and you, tell us a little bit more about how. The graduate work you're doing now, this postgraduate work, is informing and helping enhance your thoughts on this subject. Yeah, so I'm working in the book of Revelation, mm. so that's been fun to, yeah. to do a thematic approach of suffering in Revelation. What I've found is that perhaps it's given 
another way in for the Pentecostals to think about the book of Revelation. Mm. Historically, Pentecostals are very chronological about right. it, so they go from A to Z. Right. And so in, in biblical studies, people are saying, well, what do we do with the book of Revelation? You know, And I'd say that perhaps our way in could be through themes, and one of those themes could be suffering. And the, the passage that I focus on is chapter 6, 9 to 11, which is the fifth seal that's opened, okay? Mm -hmm. And you see the souls under the altar, and they're saying, how long, O Lord, until you avenge our death? And now these individuals have suffered greatly. Um, they've been slaughtered is what the scripture says. And what's interesting is that, you know, they've been slaughtered. And the word there, slaughter, in the Greek, the first time it's actually used is of Christ. Mm -hmm. And so the hearer hears slaughtered. They think of Christ. They think that these individuals have been slaughtered like Christ, mm -hmm. further witness, and now they're asking God to avenge their death in a way that they want God to be just. And God tells them, well, you know what? Just hold on a little mm -hmm. bit, be patient and he gives them white robes. And there's so much in that. Like, for instance, that God's people suffer. Yep. God's people's suffering doesn't always get an answer that's rational right, right. away. But God's people, they don't question his existence, mm -hmm. and they don't, they don't jump ship yeah. even though they've suffered. And then they're patient in the suffering to trust and still hope that amidst the suffering and amidst perhaps the greatest part of the suffering is having no answer, that God is still going to be faithful. Right. And then from that point in the book, Things begin to take place, the narrative moves forward, and God shows himself to be true and rewards them eschatologically yep. and it, what comes with that. So I think it produces a lot of hope for the sufferer, yep. and that's a hope that even though the Pentecostal's teaching wasn't necessarily like that, they still had that hope in God yeah. amidst unanswered prayer, which is amazing. And I think that we can teach individuals that um, the idea of... You know, one thing I argue in my thesis is, is the idea of moving away from God because we don't have rational answers. That's a very modern approach. That's modernism. You know, I can't right, figure right. it out. Yeah, can't, absolutely. Yeah, it's, so that's a product, that's a zeitgeist, a product of the time. Yep. You know, and, and if you go back before, you know, 17th century, before Kant, you'd feel like people were, were okay with this mash of don't have the answers, but I believe in God. Yeah. And so it's not really... Um, you know, you're not being uh, uh, epistemologically unfaithful yep. to say, I can believe that there's a tension, there's a mystery. And so as Pentecostals, I think we also embrace the mystery. What do we yeah. do when we don't know how to interpret the yeah. silence? Love it. Oh, you know? so powerful. You know, I'm, I'm a big proponent uh, of um, life stewardship. Mm -hmm. You know, when you understand, rec recognize the call that God has placed upon your life, the importance of being the best in mm -hmm. that calling that you can be. Uh, and if you're going to do that, you, you need education. What do you think is the greatest value, especially for graduate and postgraduate yeah. education? I would absolutely say formation. You know, we're living in a day where, I always say this, we can, we can know something without having learned it. Mm. And because of that, that makes answers very available and very cheap. So I think the person with the advantage today intellectually isn't the person with the answers, but is the person who's been formed right. to go and understand how we got the answers. Mm. And education forms us in, in a way that going on Wikipedia does not form us. Right. And so the person who is, uh, gets educated at that level knows how to hold their tongue, knows how to pick and choose the hill that they die on, knows what's important, knows how to synthesize. You know, we deal with a lot of influencers at Thales University, people that they have charisma, they know how to talk the language, mm -hmm. they've kind of skipped that part of their education, and they are, they're really good at regurgitating things, but what they're really bad at is synthesizing different people or different ideas yep. correctly. They can't do it because they don't know how to, like, think about that contour, or they're quick to conclude things, they're not patient in their epistemology, 
And I think that comes from the long, hardened process of education. And I would say to individuals that education is so important because it is giving yourself time to be formed, to work through the process. You know, in my, mm. my doctoral studies, um, you know, I've gotten everything redlined, redlined, redlined. And then looking back on it, I'm like, wow, I was very methodologically incorrect there. I was just doing yeah, things, true. cherry picking all yeah, over the place. Yeah. And, and education really irons that out. It love does. It, love it. It's That's almost great. like that that the time spent learning something is just as valuable as the thing that you're learning itself. Absolutely. And so get allow in a world right where it, it, everybody's a 10 minute expert because you scrolled, you know, you doom scrolled for a couple seconds you and you scroll. got a you got a 30 <laughs> second sound bite, right? It's like, "Oh, now I know everything there is to know about that subject because I was in it for 30 seconds." Yeah, or it, you're or you're being driven with your emotions to be yeah, reactionary. Right. right. Yeah. And you don't know it's like, "Yeah, they make sense. I'm I'm all about that now." And then you get into some sort of discussion at Denny's one night, right? And, and someone's like, "Well, why do you believe that?" I don't know. I saw, <laughs> right. I saw a thirty-second video, yeah. and that's what that guy said. Yeah, <laughs> it's nuts. And, uh, yeah, and unfortunately, that's how spiritual formation has been done. That's how you know our moral compasses are being tuned right now. Yeah. Right. And it, it it can't be that way. So, I we, we argue that let's get online and and try to help people as best as we can without being reductionistic. And it's been it's been a, a learning experience. Love, I love it. That. Love it. Yeah, Chris, you clearly carry a lot of different hats between education, leadership, and and ministry, even as the dean. Uh, uh, you know, you have a very creative and entrepreneurial spirit. There's no <laughs> doubt about it. I love that. How do you do it all? I mean, how do you, how do you, how do you balance it all? Yeah. yeah, so I am single. I don't have a family, so I think that's, okay. a, that's a huge part of it. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm a little bit quicker to get things done because I don't have kids running around and, yep. and, and X, Y, Z. But I also, I think that the biggest answer would be I love what I do. It's yep. a gift to do what I do. I mean, it wasn't always that way. There was all, there was days where I had to wake up and, you know, grit my teeth and just face face the day. But I, I've come to a place where I love, it's fun. I was talking to one of my colleagues yesterday and I said, you know something, the people that we hire, we one of the things that we have to look for in our hires are people who, when they go to work, they look at it as play. Yeah. They look at it as, I love doing this. Even bad days are good days because this is what I prefer to do, where a day off is actually, you know, a day on is actually a day off. Hmm. You know, for me, I remember someone told me, my dad told me, he's like, Chris, you got to relax. You know, you're, you're always in the books. Take a day off. I'm like, you don't get it. Yeah. This is a day off to yeah, do this to study do that, and, right. and, and innovate. And so maybe that's why it's just it's just so enjoyable to do that and find what you, you love. Now, we don't always get that you know, to be right. fortunate to do that, but if you, you do have it, it makes it a lot easier. Right. And what yeah. do you think were the decisions you made along the way in your career that helped you discover and align your life around to where you arrived at this point? A little trial and error. Um, you know, I had a moment, um, it was a God-changing moment, mm. another one, where I was, I went, this pastor in Detroit, I'm from Detroit, and he said to me, Chris, I want you to come to my church and I want you to teach on this. And I said, okay. And at the time, you know, I have a little preach in me, you know, I have a little bit of a preacher in me, I'm not the greatest, you know, but it comes out. And I got up there and I started teaching. And afterwards he said, you know, Palmer, you're better at teaching than you are preaching. Mm, mm -hmm. You should work your teaching gift. And something just went off in me Yeah, and said, you know, I'll never be the best teacher, but I want to do my best to be the to best be teacher. The best. I could, yeah, to yeah. be that best I could be. And it, it just drove in me to, to do that. And so along the way came, how could I do better at this? Listening mm. to myself, um, going as far as I could in education, as far as that I you know could afford and pay for and had time for. Um, and so that, I guess, recognizing and having people point yeah. out to me what I'm not good at, what I'm better at, listening to that um, has kind of brought me a little bit further, hopefully. 
Love it. Yeah. We're going to move into our fire fire round and uh, ask a few quick questions surrounding kind of everything we've talked about. And, and uh, of course, we, we do this to grab some practical, applicable pieces of wisdom and advice for our, our uh, leaders. So let's begin. We've got just three quick questions. Michael, fire the first one. Love it. Love it. So it, in this day and age where we are now missionaries to the West, what do you think are the three core characteristics that um, ministry leaders need to have? Okay. They need to learn how to communicate online. Okay. They got to learn the online language. They need to be humble. Mm-hmm. Humility stands out today. Everybody yep. is attempting to show how much they know, how how much better they are, yep. their intellectual prowess. But a, a a good a good fighter knows how to keep his fist yep. by his side. So just be humble. And I think number three, they have to be innovative. Yep. You know, not for the sake of just being crazy and innovative, but they have to think creatively and learn how to bring solutions to problems. And that begins with identifying problems right. mm-hmm. and bringing practical solutions that aren't short-sighted but have long-term uh, goals to it. I think those are maybe not the only three, but three helpful things. Love it. What is the first piece of, uh, of advice you would give to someone who's kind of struggling to discern, and we use the phrase here, divine design or their God-given purpose? Yeah, I think listening to people around you who have your best interest at heart is a very sure. good thing because sometimes perspective has to, well, a lot of times perspective has to be from the outside, especially mm-hmm. when they're young and they're formative. That's why students, if a professor points out to a student what you're good at, right. a student may not know that about themselves. Right. Mm-hmm. You know, if a student, or, or and another thing is following somebody's heart, usually where your heart is leading you. For some reason, you know, back in 2011, when I, because I'd finished my education in 06, I was in ministry, my heart started leading me to learn the Greek language, mm. and I could not shake that. Mm. I just couldn't shake it. Um, and so when you start following your heart and not suppressing it, your heart can reveal to you right. and take you places that, you know, a lot of times is yeah. by God's divine design. So follow, listen to people around you and follow your heart. I love it, love it. Last question. So somebody's been listening to this podcast, they're hooked, they want to get started diving into theology, right? Obviously we've got Theos, you, but if there was one theologian you'd recommend they, they start with, they say, hey, if you're going to start down this pack, pick up this guy's book first or girl's for, book first, which one would you recommend? Yeah, if they were going to start studying um, New Testament, I can't really speak for right. Old Testament, but if they were going to study New Testament, I think, well, my favorite theologian is Richard Balcom. Okay. Oh, yeah. And when I read the theology of the book of Revelation, yeah. it changed everything for me because in it was also like a thematic approach to it. It was non-chronological. It just yeah. turned the table over. And, and it wasn't just new insights to the book of Revelation, but it was also... You know, uh, there was also a book called The, 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 Go- the Gospel of Stories by Janine Brown, mm-hmm. and her hermeneutic was showing that we don't always have to be, you know, just historical grammatical, which means looking up the history and parsing the language, but looking as the st- understanding Scripture as a story, mm-hmm. let's read it as story, and not just discarding the story as not a theological part, but and just boiling theologies down to propositions, but looking at how the story and what's in mm-hmm. the story gives us more theology. And I also think Dr. Len Sweet is pretty amazing. Yeah. He's cool, yeah, and yeah. Um, he has a lot of cool stuff on stories. So I think start embracing the story, start liking, yep. uh, you know, really knowing that Scripture is a story and, and appreciating narrative. That, that changed it for me. Love it. Yeah, and I would say also you might, might want to start listening to Chris Palmer and, and what he's <laughs> yeah, doing. Yeah, yes, yes. And uh, amazing, yep. just love, uh, just even the time today we've had uh, to be around you and your wisdom and insights and 
Just powerful. Thank you. I want to thank you for joining us today on Framework Leadership Podcast. Grateful for, again, the insights you provided all of our listeners today. If you want to stay up to date with Chris, you can follow him at Chris Palmer on Instagram, Facebook, and on X. You can also check out his website at chrispalmer.me. Any other place we can point people to? Is that's that... pretty good, theosu.ca. Okay. You'll find my teachings there, and uh, it's, yeah, that's that's it. Love it. Yeah. That'll be great. Well, thanks for joining us on uh, Framework Leadership Podcast today. Take care, everybody. Thank you so much for joining us today on Framework Leadership. If you're watching on YouTube right now, now would be a great time to hit that like button, hit that subscribe button so you can get more leadership content right into your YouTube feed. You can also check us out on Instagram at Kent underscore Ingle at Dr. Michael Steiner or on Twitter and YouTube at Kent Ingle. And hey, if you love great email newsletters, and I know that I do, you want to check out the Framework Leadership Newsletter. Every single Friday drops in great tips to be a better leader, resources, thoughts right into your inbox. Check it out. You can sign up at kentingle.com. Make sure you hop onto there. Thank you so much for listening to Framework Leadership. Take care, everybody.